My name is M. Jason Graham, and this is the M. Jason Graham Show. Nurturing identity versus enforcing classification. Merriam-Webster Online defines identity as one, the distinguishing character or personality of an individual, and two, the relation established by psychological identification. It defines classification as systematic arrangement in groups or categories according to established criteria, specifically taxonomy. In other words, identity is a conversation, an active negotiation about a given characteristic with the goal of establishing a consensus of definition. Classification, however, is based on a static predetermined ideology that only considers the boundaries of what has been, leaving very little room for discussion or discovery. I have to admit, classifications are quite useful, especially during childhood development. There are so many human experiences to interact with, and so many different ways to communicate them. Learning a common shorthand can mean the difference between life and death. But I have to wonder if this generational advantage has gone from communicating the best practices for survival to selecting who deserves to survive. Today's guest is Marcus Haynes, a professor, author, and self-proclaimed lover of all things black speculative fiction. He creates stories that feature concepts of identity in shared spaces. As usual, I can be reached by emailing the MJG show at mjgstorycreation.com. And now, Professor Marcus Haynes. Mr. Marcus Haynes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So to start off with, what is queer identity? Hmm. I, that's a multifaceted question. Um, I think for me and probably for a lot of people, it's um, an identity that sort of lies outside of what people consider the norm, you know, um, whether that be um, different gender um, representations, whether that be different sexualities, it's really just something that kind of puts you outside of the norm and kind of gets you that opportunity to really be truly yourself. Okay. So then from a community standpoint, what do you think is needed to nurture children who may identify themselves later on as queer? Um, I think what is really needed is support. I mean, I know that sounds really simple and like really, really direct, but that's really what it is. Um, you need support in the room to sort of to find that out for themselves. I think so often we don't allow children or really anyone that opportunity to really kind of figure themselves out. We constantly try to put people in boxes and say, no, this is who you are, this is who you're supposed to be. And I think we really need that support to allow them to figure out, you know, who they truly are. So then how important is it that representation be integrated 
into subjects such as history and politics? Because I think that helps people to figure out who they are. You know, um, I can't remember the 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 famous you know wordsmith who said it, but children cannot be who they cannot see. Um, and I think that kind of plays deeply into representation. You know, you need to understand that who you are is not something that is weird or unusual or something that no one has ever been before. Basically, to understand that you are not alone. So having that representation, whether that be, you know, in media or even in schools and education and stuff like history, is important for people to see that they are not alone. I think I've heard there was a term that was uh, bandied about, it may have been years, literally years ago, uh, around the time that Orange is the New Black became a hit. Uh-huh. I heard the term, pos- instead of like role model, it was like a, a possibility model. Ooh, I like that. How important is it that people who are who are adults live their own truth? I think for most of that thing, for kind of that reason that possibility model kind of resonates because that's a possibility that people can connect to. That when you see someone living in their truth, when you see someone being who they truly are, that whether we, I think whether we want to admit it or not, that kind of gives us something to aspire to. It pretty much allows us to say, well, if they can do it, I can too. There is a lot of, I should, well, negative connotations to queer identity. Mm-hmm. What would you say to people who because in all communities we have people who are are predators how would you counter someone making an argument that maybe you know well i don't want to expose my child to that those ideas because i don't want to expose my child to those uh predators i think i my first question would be so do you plan on putting your child in a bubble in your house for the rest of your life, their lives? Because that's, as sad as, as sad as it may be to say, that's kind of the only way you can fully shelter them, you know, from any from any harm that may come to them. And honestly, if you put them in a bubble in your house, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be away from predators. Because we know that so many predators are people that, we, that they know, you know, that the victim knows, whether that be family friends, so on and so forth. So I don't think that's really a viable argument to say like, oh, well, I don't want them to know about anything dealing with queerness because that's going to expose them to predators. But they're exposed, people are exposed to predators every day. Um, and that doesn't keep us necessarily from going out and living our lives. But what this does do when you say that you're going to keep your child from understanding or knowing that queerness exists, if it, makes, if it in turn makes them ignorant of it, which very likely leads to bigotry, and if your child, unfortunately, is queer, it leads them to not knowing who they are, to feeling several different ways about themselves, possibly leading to larger mental issues down the road. So it really does more harm than good. Now, that's that's interesting what you said about several issues down the road. Mm-hmm. Queerness is not necessarily having anything to do with sexuality per se right and 
let me see if I can phrase this properly. So we have on the spectrum, we tend to talk about quote unquote gay, straight, bisexual, pansexual, but one identity that we don't talk very much about is asexual, right? Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I think it's because so much of society is built on sex, you know, just saying sex sales and, you know, um, all these sorts of ideas um, that people who sort of don't neatly fit into the way that we understand sex, the way that, you know, everybody should be going after it. That's one of your life goals, you know, you should be motivated by wanting to get sex from somebody. I think that because people who are asexual might not have a lot of those same desires, a lot of those same drives, that's queer to us. Even to other people that may be queer, that's that's, that's queer, the queer than queer kind of. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of, it's, it's, it's hard for us to deal with that. And, you know, when we don't want to deal with things, we tend to ignore them, pretend to pretend that they don't exist. And I think that's kind of been the result. Is it because nobody can really understand how in the world are you not driven by sex all the time? They don't really understand people who are asexual. So then, how should this this kind of this ideology of of queer identity and and community? How should it be How should that representation be applied to online communities? Oof, 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 oof. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, as, as, as much as you'd like to share with us. Um, I think that there's, oof, there's, there's so much that needs to be done, um, especially, you know, um, during this time where we have so many people who are um, who are having to only find community in online spaces. Um, I think it's so important that we be cognizant of the fact that, you know, people come to these communities oftentimes because they have nowhere else to go, whether they physically can't go anywhere else, you know, whether that be, you know, because of disability or because of everything that's happening. Right. Or simply because, you know, that this is a space where the only space where they feel comfortable. I think it's important for us to recognize that there's so many different facets, so many different parts of our various communities that have been ostracized for so long. And thanks to social media, and other online spaces, they are finally starting to find their voices. And I think that as online community, as people who build online communities, we have to recognize that and be willing to do that extra work to make sure they are safe and able to, you know, really find space for themselves. Um, I think it's really important that we that we recognize that, you know, people, hmm, I can say this, Online communities are really just a microcosm of communities in general. And microcosm and microscope or uh, microfocus because a lot of people who may feel the way that they express in online communities feel that same way in real life. But there's something about that online persona that gives people, that makes people emboldened. It gives them more confidence to be even worse than what they would be in their day life. So, go ahead, go ahead. well, I was just going to say, because we tend to think of that, you know, we tend to think of like the keyboard thugs 
right, right. With that, but also what you said is, as I as I think about it, it also is good. It's, it's also from a positive aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Because somebody who is queer that can't be queer in their in their physical life mm-hmm. can be queer online, can mm-hmm. kind of fully embrace that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's ex- and that's exactly why and um, that's exactly why we have to really be vigilant, you know. In the same way that people can be even nastier online, we have to be you know even more present. Um, online, because you know, it, it, in a weird way, it kind of goes both ways. So, do you think that that the companies, that the platforms, the persons who are in charge of the platforms, how much of their responsibility is it to find the line between facilitating conversation and stamping out abuse? How much of that is their responsibility? To do both of them? Uh, yes. So there's a there's a there's a line between a heated debate that becomes abusive. Mm-hmm. Right now, you know, due to a number of factors, you know, our social media is has a tendency to be toxic because the algorithms themselves reward this kind of rage machine of of engagement how much of that do you think is up to the platforms to monitor and and to police for lack of a better term and then how much do you think it is up to the the government when you say government do you mean like like the, the federal government like like initiatives like 230 Mm. Um, that's a difficult question because I think it it become it can become very tricky when you start asking the government to intervene in um to intervene in spaces like that because you could very easily you know end up in um fascist situation which you know some people are, will argue that it's kind of already there. Right. But um <laughs> I I I think I think you kind of really open up a door when you get to the point where you're asking saying like, Well look, you know, all these places are so abusive, y'all need to do something about this. Like I I'm I'm wary about about going that route. Okay. Which yeah, I must say, which is why kind of going back to what you were asking originally, which is why I think that really kinda of falls onto a lot of that falls onto uh the people who cultivate these spaces okay so not necessary so not the government that so definitely not the government Uh um and maybe not so much the people who are who created the platform Mm -hmm. but the people who use the platform it should be their responsibility more so to moderate i guess is the term moderate that behavior yeah, I mean, because when you think about it, like we do that, we do that for our own pages, our own sort of spaces on these platforms. You know, like we block people, you know, we mute people all the time, you know, who are bringing that negativity. When you're creating like a group space, um, I think that the same logic kind of applies. Okay. Well, we talked about, I, 
ideologies of, of queer identity and community in those intersections. What are some challenges to the the learning or or the the challenges to these ideologies? I, I guess not just online, but in in every facet. What are some of the main ones that you think that if we could if we could if we could kind of deal with those, then we would be a better society. I think I think one of them really is kind of what you brought up earlier, that idea that, you know, that queerness automatically equates to um, um, abusers and, you know, um, that's what I want. Predators? Predators, yes, that's what I want, predators. Um, I think that's a big thing um, because just, I think just late last week, I saw yet another post where someone was trying to use sort of like um, um, queer ideology and sort of like theorizing to try to um, excuse pedophilia. So I think that's a, that's a big thing that definitely, you know, sort of needs to, needs to be challenged and would definitely make things easier for all of us. Um, yeah, I personally, and and I I have seen that before. Okay. I I have a, a deep problem with that, but then I also have a really deep problem with people who have a problem with that, but then don't have a problem with R. Kelly. Yeah, you know that that's true. That's true. It's like you know <laughs> you can't you you can't excuse one to condemn the other. Right. Well, so a question, this is the last question, and it's the question that we have been asking our guests all season. If you could name uh, one or two books that, that you think the audience should read. Mm. Run to my shelf right quick. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, hmm. Okay. Kind of, because we talked a lot at the beginning about sort of um, about this idea of really helping with this representation, this idea of different um, identities and letting people sort of find this out for themselves. One book that I read over the summer um, is called All Boys Art and Blue by um, George M. Johnson. It it is credited as like a YA sort of memoir slash manifesto. And YA, you mean? Young adult. Young adult. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because it really kind of goes into this sort of like baseline of you know, this is how I found out about myself. This is how I got to the point to where I accepted who I am, and these are the experiences that happened to me, even that I went through even as a child, that shaped me into who I am. So it's simple enough for you know younger audiences to understand, but it's also could be useful for older audiences because it allows them to see. So like the different systemic ways in which we ignore, you know, and keep people from being who they truly are. Okay. So that's one. And a second one. Looking for my shelf now. Um, I think I'll just go with one of my old favorites. Um, and that's a book that's called Sweet Tea, Black Gay Men of the South. Um, for me, I really enjoyed that because it showed that there is a history to um, to black queerness 
that, you know, that these are people who contribute to society and communities and have places in the community that we don't even think about, that we kind of sweep under the rug or kind of ignore. But I think it allowed these people to tell their stories, to live out loud even more so than they would normally do. And they got to do it in their own words because it's an oral history. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who aren't queer or who, I mean, even young people who may be queer that, that think that, you know, queerness or black queerness started with um, Bayard Russell or um, James Baldwin. Right. And there's, I, I do like that. Didn't they make, they made a play out of that, didn't they? Yeah, um, the, 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 I guess you could say the author, E. Patrick Johnson, he did a um, one-man show that acted out a lot of that. He also did like a, I guess you call it a sequel, it's Black Queer Southern Women, which is basically the same idea, but just takes it from, instead of the perspective of Black gay men, it takes it from Black Queer Women. Huh. Well, we definitely don't really see that much, and I, I, I guess it's, it's shameful from a, the perspective we tend to focus on men yes. mainly. But thank you for sharing that second book with us. Um, speaking of books and sharing books, you are an author, and you are a an author that uh, focuses on young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. So share your information with us. Let us know where we can find you and, and what what books you have out now that are available. Yes, yes, yes. So I write a um, YA fantasy series called the Elemental Series. It follows a group of teenagers from various backgrounds, various walks of life, some queer, some not, you know, all of different um, racial backgrounds, things of that sort. And it's set in a, uh, in a fantasy world. So they are, you know, superpowers. They can go on a fantasy, epic fantasy adventures. Um, and it's something I'm really proud of because it has allowed me to really look at how people from different perspectives are still able to form sort of community. So it really kind of ties in a lot with what we've been talking about. And you can see much about that series, you know, on the official website, um, theelementalseries.com. So that kind of will take you directly to both of the two books that I have out now, um, Legend of the Orange Scepter and Return of AG. And it'll also keep you abreast for when more books and more short stories from the series and from that world come out. Care to give the M. Jason Graham show uh, an exclusive? <laughs> um, exclusive like what? What do you what do? You, what, what, any what are you any new for? projects? Or, I mean, you could be working on a uh, a web series or a comic yeah. book or I don't I don't know I don't know that's what well, <laughs> well if I had to just give a little nudge I definitely think you should be on the lookout for you know things of the web and illustrated variety I'll say that okay well <laughs> we'll of course stay in touch with you and when mm -hmm. that drops we'll have you back on the show to, to talk about it. Most there. Marcus, thank you so much for the time that you spent with us. No problem, no problem. Thank you. I would like to thank Professor Haynes for the time he shared with us today. 
The link to his young adult series, The Elementals, is in the show notes. The complexity of human experience shortcuts the idea that identity can be based on one characteristic. Like human experience, it is often messy and incoherent, leading to misunderstanding, confusion, and at times, death. All that considered, strict adherence to classification offers a worse fate. A soul devoid of contemplation, a mind devoid of imagination, a world without revelry, a place where the boundaries are so sharply drawn that the mere suggestion of challenge or adventure brings with it cancellation. Yikes. As on the nose as that was, storytelling and innovation suffer under those conditions. We cannot expect our children to inherit a world devoid of wonder. Like Professor Haynes quoted, children cannot be what they cannot see. Next week, my best friend and brother, Mr. Christopher Brigna, will share his personal journey of immigration and American citizenship. If you enjoyed this episode, share it. Don't forget to like, favorite, or subscribe. Until next time, take care of each other. The M. Jason Graham Show is written and produced by M. Jason Graham. The theme was composed by Travis D. Artis. This has been the M. Jason Graham Show. I'm M. Jason Graham.